Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Bruce. And I'm Josh, and we're your farm management hosts. Let's get started. Hey, good to see you again, Josh. Hey, um, what'd you think of that football game Saturday against Rutgers, that New Jersey team? Bruce, there's three things that I can always rely on in life, and that's taxes, death, and always questioning what's going on with the Ohio State Buckeyes. <laughs> I tell you what, I don't know if we're the number one country. We definitely have the best schedule and the best record against everybody, but I don't know. This team's making me nervous. I'm, I'm getting nervous for that Michigan game at the end of the month. Yeah, to now be named number one in the playoff uh, selection process uh, amongst the four that will enter the final four for us to be in that number one. They did talk about strength of schedule. And uh, so I guess that's a big part, part of it. But New Jersey really put, put it to us their first half. First time in a long while I can remember being behind at halftime. I think that's the first time I ever told myself Rutgers is not that bad. Rutgers is not that bad because they're usually terrible. We should have just mopped the floor with them, but... I don't know. We'll, we'll move on to the next week. I think we got Michigan State coming up next week. So hopefully that'll be a good game for us to play. Maybe at. it's the Scarlet in the Scarlet Knights that's bringing them to the table like the Scarlet and Gray that maybe will take some credit for their uh, success. But, you know, they are the home of the college football, as they say. So they're part of the Big Ten. We'll, we'll honor them in that. And uh play aggressively against our opponents each week so hunting season's coming up i'm not from a big hunting family but we have some farmland that we uh invite friends and people to come hunt on how about you josh yeah so hunting i'm not really a big big fan of hunting you know i'm all for it but i just have too much adhd i'm always moving around sitting in that tree stand i that just doesn't sound appetizing to me but my cousins my aunts my uncles they all hunt um so they get a lot of they could do a lot of hunting throughout the years yeah, Northwest Ohio, you know, and I live in Defiance County, and it's one of the counties that takes a pretty large deer harvest. And you being in Jackson County, you're probably in, down in deer country as well, Josh. Oh, yeah. Say, so I go on a walk every single day, and I live in town. Like, I live in you know, just the outskirts of town, and I see 10 to 15 deer every time I walk. So, actually, in the city of Wellston, they actually gave permission for people to hunt inside city limits, which is mind-boggling to me but that's where all the deer are at that's great so it kind of relates to our topic today we're going to talk about farmland leasing and and often up my way josh we're talking about farmland leasing for crop production or forage production uh you probably have some farmland leasing maybe for livestock and maybe hunting we have a lot of pasture rates we, we do a lot more pasture than crop ground here in jackson county just you know getting the pasture out whether they want to rent it out for hay ground or for running cattle on it, but we have more pasture than hay in Jackson. Well, we have a great guest today then. And we're going to, uh, our guest today is Peggy Hall. Peggy is the director of the OSU Ag Law Program. She's an attorney uh, with Ohio State. And we're really pleased to have not just Peggy, but a team of attorneys that work in ag law for Ohio State University and the, and the citizens of Ohio. Uh, Peggy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're going to kick off. Let's start with um, these things called enforceable farmland leasing. Um, can you walk us through this whole enforceable mm -hmm. lease component? Well, you hit on a key word because sometimes we just say yes to a leasing agreement and it, it's a verbal yes. Um, and the question becomes, is that legally enforceable? Will a court of law uphold that verbal agreement? And the answer often is no, because Ohio law requires you to have any kind of interest regarding real property, 
such as a lease, a sale, property, those are required to be in writing and to be signed by that party you're trying to enforce it against. Otherwise, a court just simply may not enforce what you thought you agreed to. So enforceability is key. Now, there are some exceptions to that. And we often get there with farmland leases where maybe the tenant operator has proceeded and has already planted a crop. In that situation, the court might set aside that requirement to have it in writing and will honor or enforce that lease. But it's risky to go without that written leasing agreement. So Peggy, you said written. What is the definition of written? Could a text be written? Could the napkin written down? What What is written? Yeah, that's a good one too. Um, texts are harder. Uh, the law is evolving in that area, but the problem becomes if you want to enforce it, it needs to be signed by that party against whom you're trying to enforce it. So a text doesn't often meet that signature requirement. So A napkin could, if it's signed, there are actually cases, believe it or not, where contracts have been written on napkins and have been upheld because they were signed. So that's the kind of writing we're looking for on paper with a signature. And as you know, we're becoming more proficient in being able to obtain those electronic signatures now. So the law is changing to to allow those as well. So when we talk about a written lease, it might kind of think about a checklist almost. What would be the components of what any lease, we already mentioned hunting, farmland, pasture, uh, any of those. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly probably the first one would be where the property is at. Um, What else might be on that checklist? If you want just the basic elements, and this is something I recommend to people who are a little uncomfortable going to that written lease, let's just start with the core basic elements. Get your the correct legal names of the parties on there. Get a good description of the property. And certainly when we're talking about crop production or, or grazing, we need that acreage number and we need that to align with you know our FSA numbers and make sure we know exactly how much land we're referring to here. And then the addresses of the parties how long that lease is going to last and what the parties must do to terminate it, if anything, if it's not an automatic termination. Those are really critical um, provisions to address as well. And then, of course, the payment and how that payment would be handled. Those are the core parts. Now, of course, we attorneys like to throw in a lot more than the core because we're always thinking about worst case scenario. And that's why we have that checklist that you referred to, Bruce, that would contain many other provisions to consider. Yeah, that makes sense, the core and uh, kind of the, what what beyond the core then, um, other expectations be maybe the landowner has for the tenant yes. that's going to be using the property? Yes, definitely how that property will be maintained. You know, more and more we're seeing those absentee landowners who want to rely on that tenant operator to maintain the property. So let's lay out those provisions and see what we can agree to there. We're even in a, you know, in another situation, not just an absentee situation, just who will maintain field access points, for instance. What about um if we need to fix tile, make those kinds of capital improvements on the land, that's another common provision we like to include in there. And increasingly, I'm seeing more and more about conservation provisions, as well as nutrient management kind of going hand in hand, where those landowners 
um, or tenant operators may have you know, specific desires to use certain types of conservation practices or to use or restrict certain kinds of agricultural nutrients. So we can address that in the lease as well. Now, Peggy, in Jackson County, we have a lot of uh, farmers and whenever they're leasing out land, it's usually to either their family members or it's to close friends. Are there any type of good strategies about communicating about how we get these written leases? Because a lot of them just by, you know, the good old, the good old boy system, you know, I've known you for years, I've got the trust, you want a written document now? Why don't you trust me anymore? Is there any good strategies in working through that? There are. I I always say, blame it on us, blame it on the attorneys. Just say, my attorney is just insisting that I get this in writing. And I think sometimes that works, actually, believe it or not. So I'm willing to take that blame, you guys. You can you can tell, you know, tell your other party that, hey, the attorneys say I have to do this. Um, the other thing is we just never know what's around the corner. So there could be a death um, that that can really create havoc for a leasing situation if one of those parties dies unexpectedly. And that's another thing that we do include in our checklist is let's have um, some provisions here to address what happens. Is this lease binding if one of us passes away unexpectedly or just becomes incapacitated for one reason or another? So I think those are the two primary mechanisms that we recommend for trying to get over that. Why do you want me to put this in writing? Don't you trust me? problem. It's not really a matter of trust. It's a matter of trying to foresee, you know, that kind of worst case scenario that could happen and trying to reduce your risk of that. And likely, well, I guess in the past, uh, you've been involved in disputes under leases. And can there be a component of how to resolve those disputes if they arise and just some procedures? There can be. Yes, you can include that in your lease, how are we going to address a problem? And, you know, when we are talking about a conversation, we all know our memories start to dwindle over time. What did we say? What did we agree to? Or did we even talk about that? So not only are we getting those issues down on paper, but we're getting that provision for if we didn't anticipate it, or if we do have a problem with trying to interpret these provisions, how are we going to resolve that? Do we really have to jump to a court of law or can we resolve it in a different way? And that would be what I would recommend. Let's let's try some other ways to resolve it beyond just going to court and having that time and, and money wrapped up in a legal battle. So we're getting close to hunting season and we kind of preempted a little bit about hunting and uh, all corners of Ohio have hunting activities. So up in Northwest Ohio, down in South Central, Southwest Ohio, all over Ohio, there's permission being given. And whether it's at, you know, Josh's farm, my farm, what's kind of the difference between permission and leasing for hunting purposes? Can you help us navigate that? Sure. You know, a hunting lease could satisfy both the lease and permission, but under Ohio law, what a hunter needs is just written permission, and that's that signature on their hunting license. So that's one thing. That's not necessarily a lease, but that written permission is what is necessary in order to have that right to hunt on someone's property. When we're talking about a lease, we go beyond that permission and start thinking about 
well, how do we want this hunting activity to play out? What kinds of permission am I getting, giving this person and, and what kinds of restrictions do I want to place on that? And in turn, what might I expect the hunter to do for me? And so we see all of those kinds of issues addressed in a lease and written permission just doesn't get to all of that, of course. Is there any type of timeline where uh, someone would want to relook at a lease, you know, update the lease, offer it? Is there any type of timeline that we want a lease to last? Well, if we're talking about a hunting lease, um, it is a good practice. And Bruce, I think you do this to think about what's the hunting season we're addressing and try to align that lease with the hunting season so that it's not just this, you know, lease that goes on and on uh, without a timeline attached to it. So it depends on what, what they're hunting and what that season is. I would tie it to that. If we're talking about a farmland lease, um, it's common to go a year to year or go multiple years and make it, we're, we're really seeing an increase three to five years has become somewhat popular when we're looking at that production type of lease. I think maybe too often I, I've heard of stories about hunting permission that was granted, you know, maybe decades ago and it there was never an ending date. So maybe the landowner is okay with that but maybe the hunter might take advantage of that uh, unclear expiration of that permission. So then the permission to hunt just keeps going year after year after year. And then who all is there? And so uh, what are some of the protections that the landowner gets by considering uh, written permission to hunt? and maybe your written leases on hunting? You know, one question I get a lot is, well, if I didn't give them that written permission this year, will I be liable if they're harmed on my property, if they're back there hunting because they think they have permission that I, you know, they're still working on that permission I gave them several years ago. And actually there's double protection for landowners in that situation. The law says that if you give them written permission, you're protected from liability if they're harmed while hunting. And it also says if you didn't give them written permission, you have no liability if they are harmed back there um, on your land while hunting. So that's one thing, the liability question. But I think the leasing question can go, of course, beyond liability. And that's usually not the main reason that people have a lease is for that liability protection because we are so well covered by statutory law. But when we look at the lease and some of those other issues, um, probably the most common question I get is about tree stands and other kinds of devices, blinds. Um, can I restrict what they have? Or from the hunter's side, you know, do I need to make sure that I can put up a tree stand or blinds? And the answer is yes on both sides of that. Let's let's make sure that we understand. Uh, what kinds of additional improvements or structures we can put on the land because some don't want those tree stands at all and very worried about them. So that's one one common provision um, that I see. The other one is baiting. Some landowners really don't want their hunters to use any kind of, you know, apple pile or corn pile or or baiting of any kind. So that's a common one. Uh, that I see as well. So switching gears kind of a little bit, 
Uh, we're talking, I've got a lot of questions about agricultural easements. I've had people calling me asking, you know, just what an agricultural easement is um, because they've been seeing just a loss of farmland due to, you know, development issues, um, anything of that nature. Can you explain a little bit about what an agricultural easement is? Yes, I can. And it's interesting to me, Josh, because I know you're young, you're the the generation after, after me. Um, but when I was about your age, we were asking questions about agricultural easements because we were having tremendous growth in our rural areas in Ohio at that time. And then things slowed and changed a little and the farm economy you know, was very strong. And then those ag easement questions slow down with that. But now you're right. We're we're in another period of a lot of development across Ohio, whether it's residential or commercial or some of these, you know, these new industries that are coming to Ohio, like the solar energy industry. And I'm seeing a lot of questions now about how do we protect agricultural land from those types of conversions that would take it out of ag production and put it to another use. And an agricultural easement is certainly one way to do that. And what's I think often of interest to many families is that you can receive um, money for that. It you, you can basically kind of pull out some of the equity in your land and receive a payment for agreeing to keep it in agricultural production. Now, payment is usually tied to perpetuity, so you would have to agree to do that in perpetuity, but it is one way um, through these competitive easement programs. It is one way to still capitalize on the, the value of your land, the equity in your land, but protect it as agriculture um, at the same time. So there's you're right. There's a lot of interest in it again. It's kind of interesting to see it come right back around um, from my generation to yours. So how similar is that type of easement to a conservation easement? They are similar. And first, Ohio law allowed us to have conservation easements, which um, were really going to what's the purpose of the land, the purpose of the protection, what use does the land have to be maintained in? And a conservation easement says, well, the land has to stay as open space or wooded space or conservation or wildlife habitat space. And we used to put our agricultural uses within those conservation easements. But again, back when um, the concerns were generating 20 or so years ago, we also developed a second easement interest that we called the agricultural easement. And for that one, the land is to be used for agricultural production. So slightly different purposes. When we're talking about farmland, you could get them in under either, but if you really want to do only farmland aimed at agricultural production, the agricultural easement is typically the instrument that we use. So thinking a little bit about farm transition planning, how can we use uh, these easements to help with that process? It's it's pretty interesting. Um, to do that. And we have a publication on farm office called Keeping Farmland in the Family, where uh, Robert and I describe that process of how an agricultural easement can assist with farmland transition. So again, if you have acreage that you know you want 
to remain in agriculture. If you have children who you know want to farm that land in the future, if you're pretty sure that there is no desire uh, to take that land out of agriculture and use it for other purposes, then you could seek one of these agricultural easements through the competitive programs. We have a state program and there are also federal dollars available. And if you are selected for that program, then you would receive a payment. It's a, it's a per acre payment that tries to get to that difference between the value of the land as agricultural land and its value um, as you know fair market value development type land. It tries to look at that gap and give you a payment to try to cover that difference if you commit to keeping that land agricultural forever. So let's say that payment is a half million dollars. Well, think about what that infusion of cash can do for a farming operation. It can allow you to buy more land. It can allow you to diversify, um, purchase equipment, whatever that need might be that could help bring that next generation in and stabilize them financially for the future. Maybe before we go into the pros and cons of that strategy, I some of what I understand about easements is there's a holder of that land. I guess, does the landowner transfer land to the holder of the easement? Who are the parties involved in an easement of these sorts? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's kind of a difficult concept to grasp because it's not like our typical easement. It's slightly different. Um, There are only certain parties, entities in Ohio who can hold an easement. But even if they're holding the easement, the title to the land remains with the landowner and the landowner can sell that or transfer it to their children. That title remains there. They still own the land, but the holder owns the right or holds the right to enforce the easement agreement. And so within that easement agreement, you're you're agreeing and we call it a deed of easement. You're agreeing to keep that land in agriculture in perpetuity. So that holder has the right to hold you to that or to hold future landowners to that agreement and the other provisions within the deed. So those holders, Bruce, are the state of Ohio, um, our counties, uh, local governments, and our soil and water conservation districts, as well as the um, our organized land trusts that are that are organized for the purpose of protecting land and resources. So say someone wants to go ahead and get an agricultural easement on their land, how would they go about that? Who would they contact to go through that process? Well, they need to find that holder. That's really an important first step. Who do you want to work with on that? Who do you trust to be the holder of your easement? Who could you have a good working relationship with? And typically when we're talking about our state program here in Ohio, the it's called the Local Agricultural Easement Protection Program. That's run through our Office of Farmland Preservation at ODA. Um, those holders tend to be either the county or the Soil and Water Conservation District or a land trust. So look around and see who is active in your area as a holder and and develop that relationship and see who you're comfortable with. That would be the first part. And then you need to just learn about the eligibility requirements as well as some of the other requirements and restrictions that come with entering into that deed of easement. 
uh, work with your professional team to look at the financial implications, the legal implications, what that would mean to you to to not only enter into that instrument, but also to receive that, as I said, that infusion of cash that comes with selling an agricultural easement. And then also, Josh, there are um, there are requirements through those programs where you have to donate a portion of the value of that. So you need to have some skin in the game, basically. And that donation of that value can also qualify you for some federal tax benefits. So you need to understand that too, how those federal tax credits could play into your overall financial picture. So there is some work to do. I talk about all of that in the two blog posts that I recently wrote about these. Um, but for those who are you know, committed to keeping the land in agriculture, um, it can be a wonderful tool to utilize. So Peggy, you mentioned the blog post and how else do you write uh, and communicate these opportunities in ag law? Where do you post your information? Where where can our listeners find more about this subject? We have uh, all our publications on farmoffice.osu.edu. And that's kind of our one-stop shop for farm management and legal information for our Ohio landowners. On that page, farmoffice.osu.edu, there is a law library. And so within the law library, you'll find um, different, what we call shelves, broken down by different areas of agricultural law. And within each of those areas, we have our law bulletins, and then we have our longer publications that I write along with Robert Moore, who's now the second attorney with me. And then we're also getting some good tax and employment information from Jeff Lewis, who is a third attorney who works with our income tax schools. So you can find all of our legal information there and in the blog. We we do write blog articles several times a week as well. And that's on farmoffice.osu.edu also. Well, thanks, Peggy. You're a great resource that we use here at OSU Extension. I know whenever I get calls from my local Extension office, usually any law questions, I point them either to the, the farm office team or to Peggy, to Robert Moore, or to Jeff Lewis. They're usually a great help. So thank you for joining us today, and we greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening today. For more information about farm management tips, be sure to check out the farm office at farmoffice.osu.edu. Hey, podcast listeners, just a reminder to give us a like or subscribe so you know when we release new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to leave us a review also. We appreciate the comments.